Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Hey, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana. Hi, Casper, Ariana, and Vanessa. Dear Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and everyone who helps make this podcast possible. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Stephanie Paulsell. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owl Post edition. Stephanie, it's so good to see you in the studio. It always is. We invited you here today to talk a little bit about pilgrimage. We just read Hagrid's tale last week. And I think there's an argument to be made that he and Maxime are on a sort of pilgrimage. And you and I have been running this pilgrimage program together for the last couple of years called Common Ground. Last June, you and I read To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf and went with 15 pilgrims and walked through South Downs National Park and visited Rod Mel and Virginia Woolf's house and really trod in the old paths that she had walked. And so what I'm thinking about in trying to figure out what makes these trips sacred for me in my own life is one that they they have a sort of Sabbath quality to them where it's a time out of time. I'm not on my phone. I'm not worried about things that I am traditionally concerned with. I am in a present state on the pilgrimage. And the other thing is that there's a real acquiescence to hospitality. You're not on a traditional vacation where you know exactly how all of your needs are going to be met, there's almost some risk involved. And we were very aware of that while planning. Like, what if somebody twists an ankle in the middle of this road? We brought an extra human, Julia, just in case of that. So there seems to be both a time out of time in a peaceful way, but also some risk involved. Is that sort of like theologically right? What what makes a pilgrimage a pilgrimage. I think both of those things are right, a time out of time and taking risks. I mean, really, tourism, traveling for vacation comes out of the human experience of pilgrimage. Pilgrimages came first. And I guess what I would add to those two things would be some pilgrimages are about walking in somebody's footsteps, you know, following along behind someone else. Pilgrims are always following along behind someone else because you're always walking the route that the pilgrims before you walked. Think of like Basho in the 17th century in Japan, a great haiku poet who 
traveled around the north of Japan, walked, you know, 2,000 kilometers, and he wanted to sit on the same rock that the poet Sagio had sat on. He wanted to look at Mount Fuji from the same perspective. He wanted to see the cherry blossoms blossom the way that the artists and the poets who traveled those roads before him saw and wrote about. And so he used other people's poetry as his map to move around the north of Japan. Of course, in religious traditions, pilgrimage is often about going to a sacred site, to the Hajj, the Santiago Trail in Spain, to Compostelo. Um, you know, you're trying to get to a particularly spiritually resonant place. But I think what pilgrimage teaches us and the literature of journey and quest generally teaches us is that arriving isn't always where the most interesting stuff happens. The place where the most interesting stuff happens is in the space in between, the time out of time, the no longer but not yet kind of space. And, you know, that was true for us as well on our Virginia Woolf pilgrimage. We we were reading to the lighthouse and we imagined our pilgrimage as starting in one place and ending up at the sea at, at a lighthouse, if not the lighthouse. But really, where the most interesting things happened were in all the spaces in between. Um, when we visited Wolf's house, where we visited the river where she died, where we got close to her, that was not what we expected. We thought we would be moving toward the great climax of the trip at the end, um, when actually it came more in the middle. What you just shared reminded me of a story that I heard when I was in the old city of Jerusalem, and a tour guide told us that she had given a tour many years ago to Neil Armstrong when he visited the old city, and that she said to him, these are the steps where Jesus walked. And he said to her, that is more exciting to me than having walked on the moon. And I think that that's the difference between pilgrimage and exploration, right? It was to some extent, more exciting to him to have walked where Jesus walked, where where people had walked before him, than it was to be the first person. Right. Pilgrimage is about repetition. It's not about being the first one there. Um, it's about placing oneself in a long line of others who have also sought maybe something of what you're seeking. I mean, what I took from the story also is that it was meaningful to know that Jesus was a person who had two mm -hmm. feet, who walked here, right? Yeah. Which simultaneously makes Jesus seem more human and us seem more full of potential, mm -hmm. right? And I wonder if that, to some extent, is what it is for Basho also. Yeah. It's if these great poets— sat on this rock, that means that I, too, can sit on right. this rock, right. and I, too, can maybe write that great of a right. poem. Absolutely. It's not about diminishing them, but about humanizing them, and therefore yeah. realizing some sort of potential within us. Right, right, that we're more maybe than we know ourselves to be. Right. It makes me think of Wolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, where Clarissa Dalloway is thinking about death, and she thinks— Maybe after death, I'll be spread out like a mist among all the people I love and, and among the trees in my childhood home. And I think going to the place where Virginia Woolf walked, going to the place where Jesus walked, we do feel these presences spread out like a mist over the landscapes that they loved and that were fam familiar to them. 
What always amazes me is one of the things I love about technology is that whenever I'm anxious, I read Darcy's letter to Elizabeth, where he has the time and space to explain all of their miscommunications. And that is something that calms me and that I'm so grateful to the Kindle app. But then when I had the opportunity to walk the exact same path that Virginia Woolf had walked from her sister's house to her house and back, I was overwhelmed by the specificity of being physically in an important place. And so I, I simultaneously feel how lucky I am with technology that I can carry around Darcy and Elizabeth's relationship in my back pocket, but that there still is something materially important about being in the right space or with the right artifact. Ariana and I got to see a first edition Jane Eyre at the Huntington Library, and I started crying just imagining what that first edition meant to Charlotte Bronte and how overwhelmingly proud she must have been at the sight of this same book. That doesn't mean that I don't love that I can also have the book on my Kindle. It makes me wonder about how much materiality matters and how much of these things are just about the spiritual connection. Right. Well, I think one of the things that you learn on pilgrimage is about the portability of the sacred. And so the the book on your Kindle, you can, you know, pull out of your bag anytime you can make a pilgrimage anytime you want. Um, and that's a wonderful thing about pilgrimage. It makes me think of Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, which is an internal pilgrimage. And she she says to her nuns, this is a trip you can take whenever you want, and you don't have to ask anybody's permission to do it. Um, so she's speaking to nuns who are going to be in the same monastery their whole lives. They're never going to leave. And she's saying, you can go on this journey, on this pilgrimage, anytime you want, because it's it's inside of you. And there's an exciting journey to be had going to the inside of yourself. But there is something about the materiality of objects and the tree that Basho wanted to sit under or the bank of the river that we sat beside. There is something, I think, spiritually saturated because of the People who have done it before us, places become spiritually saturated because communities have visited them, have gone to them, have built their cairns next to them, have said their prayers there. And people like Basho believe they could experience that, 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 that there were traces and remnants of those experiences still there. I'm wondering about the morality of calling things pilgrimage, that of making things sound sacred when they're not. But it's just a hard thing to say. I mean, Hagrid and Maxime are sent on a diplomacy mission, and I think it simultaneously is a romantic holiday for them. And I also do think it's a sort of pilgrimage, at least for Hagrid. He goes and finds out that his mother has died, and he comes back with his brother and with a better understanding of a huge part of his family's culture. So part of me does want to read this trip as a pilgrimage, as a sacred journey where Hagrid is on a time out of time and he's relying on the hospitality of others and he walks in the footsteps that his mother walked in before him. And yet the other part of me is morally skeptical of that idea that I'm placing something more beautiful 
a more beautiful narrative upon it than was authentically experienced. And I'm just trying to shine up something that wasn't truly like that. In mm-hmm. the same way that I feel about pilgrimage is by saying being in the same room as a physical copy of mm-hmm. Jane Eyre is more important than having a Kindle edition. It feels mo- morally complicated because of the scarcity of one versus the other. Right. Right. I mean, I think pilgrimage is political. Pilgrimage is always political. And one of the ways that people who have studied pilgrimage have talked about that, like the anthropologist Victor Turner and Edith Turner, they talked about how pilgrimage brings people into the possibility of intimacy, people that would not know each other back at home. And they called this communitas, like in Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales, this motley group of people, a knight and a nun and a clerk and a priest, people who would not be interacting back in the village. Suddenly they're eating together, they're walking together, they're telling stories to each other, they're talking together. Lots of things come up when you're traveling on foot. You have to protect each other from potential violence. You have to find a place to sleep. You have to make sure everybody gets fed. The liminal space in between, between leaving home and getting where you're going, one of the things you learn is that things at home could be otherwise. We could be interacting with each other differently. We could know people who are not like us. We get a glimpse of what our society could be a place where people from lots of different backgrounds are cooperating and looking out for the good of the whole group. And I think the great thing about these sort of pop-up pilgrimages, these portable pilgrimages of going inside yourself or reading a book is that it's true there too. And even, you know, Teresa going inside oneself, one of the things that that has to happen if that pilgrimage is going to be successful as the cultivation of self-knowledge. And it's really hard. And she says you have to skirt around the serpents and the snakes that are hanging around outside the paths you're trying to enter. That, you know, the, the encounter with ourself can also show us that things could be otherwise. We could be different. We don't have to be as we are. So I think whether we're getting on a plane and flying to England and walking through London or walking through Sussex, or whether we're sitting at home and reading to the lighthouse or listening to a podcast and making our journey with Hagrid to the Giants or just making the journey through these books with you and Casper, these can all count as pilgrimages, I think. Um, These are all risky adventures where we have to rely on one another to learn what we need to learn and to get where we need to go. I think that the most striking memory of our pilgrimage to me was the moment that we were by the river um, where Virginia Woolf walked in. And that was a moment that articulated to me how important diverse experiences are, knowing that there were people in the group who had lost family to suicide or who had experienced suicidal thoughts themselves. And feeling so a part of that group made that experience of what Virginia Woolf went through in her decision so markedly different than if I'd been there alone. Mm. And it felt like being a part of this this larger group made me more vulnerable to a different kind of experience Absolutely. than anything I could have experienced on my own. Absolutely. And one of the things I remember from that day was one of our participants um, stood up to speak 
as we sat in silence by the river. And she was from Iceland. She spoke English very well, but she had something really close to her heart she wanted to say, and so she said it in her native tongue. She didn't translate it. She just said it in Icelandic, and it was so meaningful to me. And I have no idea what she said, but it was so meaningful to me to hear her say something deeply true in the language, you know, of her mind and her heart. That's the thing about pilgrimage. Meaning accumulates as you go, and meaning has accumulated over time. Think of all the people who have sat by that river, loving Virginia Woolf, missing Virginia Woolf, reading Virginia Woolf, mourning Virginia Woolf, and gathering up their own losses and their own griefs and bringing them to that place. We're walking in the atmosphere of all of that. So, Stephanie, while we have you in the studio, we obviously want to exploit you to help us respond to some voicemails. I'm so glad to. So our first one today is from Danielle Daniels. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. My name is Danielle, and I'm from Michigan. I am 26 years old, and this last few years have been rough Um, for us. We've experienced a lot of death amongst our classmates, and we've had a lot of death amongst our younger classmates even, which has been really hard. Um, My aunt died recently after a battle of lung cancer that turned into brain cancer and it it was devastating. It was the first of my mom's sisters to pass away and my mom is the youngest of a large family and so we've just been thinking, um, my sister and I, about how this is really just the beginning. Her funeral was yesterday and I haven't quite quit crying about it and As an atheist, I was really disappointed and just honestly heartbroken because I didn't get really any closure from the funeral because they just kept talking about how heaven is a real place. And I know that that's very comforting for people that are religious, but as someone that isn't religious, hearing over and over again that heaven is real and heaven is real, um, it didn't really give me the closure and it didn't, it didn't comfort me. And it left me thinking about my own funeral. And I know that it sounds so, so morbid because we're so young, but after experiencing the death of so many of my classmates just in the last few years, and then going to this, this religious ceremony about, about Jesus and heaven and hell and saviors, it left me thinking about what I wanted my own funeral to be like. And I've been listening to the podcast for a while now. I was kind of a late, late member to the party, but I'm so grateful that I found it. And I've kind of come to the realization that I'm going to start writing down my own favorite quotes, um, specifically for the purpose to be read during my funeral, whether it is um, a week from now in some type of freak accident or if it's 45 years from now. And I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. And I appreciate it more than um, you could know. And I'm so grateful for the other voicemails. And thank you. 
Well, first of all, Danielle, I'm so sorry about the death of your aunt. It's so hard to lose someone you love and, and really hard to feel the first loss of a generation um, and anticipating the losses to come. That's really profound and really hard. Your voicemail reminded me so much of Virginia Woolf. She writes in her diaries frequently about the funerals of her friends that she attends, especially as she gets older, and she's always so frustrated. She says, I feel dulled and bothered by the you know experience of not believing, and all of this talk about heaven just seems too easy. What does this have to do with my friend? What does any of this have to do with the person that I lost? I think your idea of writing down the quotes of beloved literature that you want to use in your funeral is so wonderful on so many levels. First of all, it's just smart, and you'll have what what you most want in the end, and that's wonderful. But it's also, you know, the ancient philosophers would consider that a practice of wisdom, a practice of cultivating wisdom. They said we should keep our death before us so that we would live more vividly, more intensely, more with more attention that we would really live intentional lives, the kinds of lives that we wanted to live and not look back and say, oh, wow, I wasted those years. I wasted that opportunity. I think by keeping your florilegium of bits and pieces of things that you would like read at your funeral, you are both preparing a magnificent funeral for yourself and also deeply engaging in in a practice of wisdom that has a long, long history And you'll be following in the footsteps of others who have done the same. I'm grateful to you for that idea, for that suggestion. And I wish you well and certainly wish your family well as you come to terms with this loss. I had a a very similar thought, which is that, Danielle, I just think you're cultivating the practice of living well in conversation with your own death. You know, it sounds to me like you are an atheist who made meaning of a religious experience that didn't work for you. And in conversation with something that didn't work for you, you've come up with a solution that does. I think that that is incredibly commendable. Rather than finding despair in something that didn't speak to you, you found a way to answer. Our next voicemail is from Marcy Walker. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. I'm calling about your episode called Supremacy. I had a couple of different takes to offer on how supremacy shows up in Chapter 17. First, I don't see supremacy in Casper's story or in Vanessa's breakdown of the house systems. I think that both of those show pride more so than supremacy. A pride that is actually tethered to real talent, giftedness, strength, or ability. However, with supremacy, it exists regardless of those things. The white supremacy we see in this country, for example, isn't based on white people being better than other people, far from it. It only exists because that group, without reason of talent, value, or giftedness, has more power than others. In houses and team sports, one group actually might be more skilled than another at something. With supremacy, having more skill isn't even a factor. The only factor is who has the most power and how will that group keep that power? Which brings me to Snape and Umbridge. I think Umbridge is using the supremacy of the ministry to discredit Snape, a professor who longs to teach students a class that threatens the ministry's power. 
As an African-American woman, I see this power play exacted all the time when systems of white supremacy discredit Black voices by constantly denying that things are actually racist. Much like the ministry keeps saying there's no Voldemort, therefore there's no need for questions or for a defense of the dark arts class. Thank you for listening. I absolutely love your show. Marcy, I love your voicemail, and I think it points us brilliantly to the fact that the supremacy is only about power and is not about talent or skill or anything else. And the language of supremacy often conflates those two things. And I appreciate you calling us to being very specific in our language. And I think we should have focused on that more. I just firmly believe that the houses are all but arbitrary and are only about power. You know, and we we sort of talk about it as Harry Potter fans, that Ron could be in Hufflepuff because he's so loyal and, and Harry could be in Slytherin just as easily and Hermione could be in Ravenclaw. I think that the house system is a system of segregation that's propped up by tradition and should be dismantled immediately and is relatively arbitrary. I don't think 11-year-olds are fully formed enough to be sorted in this way. So I do think that it's only about power. But I I do take your point completely about Quidditch, right? There, that's not about supremacy. That is about one team playing better than another. Thanks, Marcy. I was really struck by your reading of the way the ministry functions in this chapter, your comparison to the way white people will often deny that racism is happening in an attempt to protect our innocence or maintain power, and that that's a similar thing going on in the ministry, that, you know, if they just say Voldemort isn't back over and over again, maybe it will be so. And, of course, it won't. Um, and I think we and see And, in this, fact, saying it makes it worse. Right, saying, saying, Vol- saying it makes it worse. That's right. right. Saying it makes it worse. Saying that's not racist yeah. makes it more racist. Exactly. Saying Voldemort is not back means we're not out there looking for Voldemort. Exactly. But I think in this particular moment in our country, when the strategy of just saying something over and over, regardless of whether it's true or not, that has to be just constantly called out over and over again. And you've done a beautiful job calling it out through the interpretation of this text. Marcy, thank you so much. I really appreciate that voicemail. Our next one is from Leah Bauman. Hi there. My name is Leah, and I'm from Ontario and a longtime reader of Harry Potter. Your podcast gives me great entertainment during my workouts and walks to school, so thank you so much for that. I listened to the episode on Dread from the Sorting Hats new song a few weeks ago, but I've also been reading The Order of the Phoenix on the side and just happened to finish that chapter. One line from it that really struck me happens during the argument Seamus and Harry have after dinner. Ron asks if anyone else has parents who have trouble with Harry, and Dean says, My parents are muggles, mate. They don't know nothing about no deaths at Hogwarts because I'm not stupid enough to tell them. I really appreciate in this season you guys have made a point to discuss Harry's PTSD, but it really struck me when I was reading this chapter that Dean especially has no one to confide in about the events of his fourth year. I can only imagine the amount of dread he must have felt coming home to his parents, and when they ask how his year was, he just has to lie and say it was good. He must have sat at home for most of the summer trying to process the events of his fourth year without having another set of ears and another brain to help him. 
I wonder too about Hermione and how she did or did not tell her parents about what happened and how it must have been so difficult for them as teenagers to process these events alone. I have had countless friends go through serious trauma and ask me to keep it a secret, and I dread the days I come home after being with these friends when my parents will inevitably ask how they are and I just have to lie and say they're fine. Meanwhile, a million questions are buzzing through my head that I long to discuss with my parents or some of the, someone of age or experience. So I'd like to offer a blessing to Dean and to anyone else who has been witness to secondhand trauma, but for whatever reason is made to process it and make meaning out of it on their own, without the rationality or experience of others. It is hard to do, but do the best you can and make sure you're taking your care of yourself as you process it. Leah, thank you so much for that really lovely sentiment and blessing. Being a secret keeper is really hard. And I think also this just speaks to me about how hard it is to be a teenager and feel like adults often don't take your problems seriously. You know, I remember when my friend Brandy died in high school, my parents hadn't met her. We were friends through soccer. And so she was someone who was a part of my daily life, and our lockers were next to each other in the locker room, right? So she was someone who meant a lot to me. And I I do remember my parents being like, "Mm, how close were you to her? And they were obviously kind and understanding, but it did feel like a disconnect. And I feel like often teenagers can just feel so isolated, and they're like very strong and very valid feelings that are not necessarily seen by adults. Thanks, Leah. I really appreciate the way you point out just the improvisational quality of our care for each other. I feel like you've blessed our ordinary attempts to take care of each other and of ourselves. We do the best we can often and are not sure if it's enough. I think we don't acknowledge that enough. I also wonder if this is an opportunity for Dean to have home be a place of respite where he doesn't have to think about the trauma that's happened to him and a friend. Sometimes I do think that there's a benefit to not talking about certain things with certain people, just so like that can be a place or a group of people who you don't have to bring that sorrow to. This next voicemail is from Darlin Summers. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name is Darlin. Um, I'm calling from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, I'm currently in the middle of the chapter on healing. And Vanessa, you said something that really struck me. Um, you talked about survivor's guilt and how, um, you know, just because you survived something doesn't necessarily mean you are more righteous or better. Um, it just has to do with luck. Um, Last August, I found out I was pregnant, which is a huge deal. My wife and I have been trying to have a baby for two years. Um, and when I finally found out that it was going to happen, we were overjoyed. And then we found out shortly after that my sister-in-law was also pregnant and due about three weeks before we were. Um, a coworker of mine is pregnant and was due um, about three days before we were. And my cousin was also pregnant and due 
right around the same time we were. Um, and so we were really excited. We had so many people having babies all, you know, so close together and we knew that our babies were going to be close. Um, and at 14 weeks, I miscarried. I delivered my son at home. Um, he was perfect. He had 10 fingers and 10 toes and he was so tiny. Um, and it's been really, really hard now to heal and just know that there are three other people in our lives that are, that are going to be moms. Um, and we won't. And it's been really hard for me to not, sorry, um, to not just continuously ask myself, well, what was wrong with me? Why, why couldn't I carry our baby? Why, why did ours die and theirs didn't? Um, and I guess, Vanessa, hearing you talk about survivor's guilt and knowing that sometimes you get to live just because of luck makes me realize that it wasn't anything that I did. Um, it was just bad luck. You know, one in four, one in four women experience a miscarriage at some point, um, which we don't talk about. So when it actually happens to you, it seems like you're alone and you're not. Um, so I just, I don't know. Thank you for helping me put that into a little bit better of a perspective. Um, I appreciate it. Darling, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. Of course, it is not your fault. And you are absolutely right that many women have experienced miscarriage. I wonder if you might think about creating some kind of ritual. I feel like this is such a lack in our culture. There are not regular ritualized ways to mark this particular loss, to remember that precious, beautiful baby, to mark the the great grief and sadness of this moment. It, it deserves to be lifted up and remembered and shared with the people that you love. And darling, far be it for me to disagree with anything that you said, but you said that these other women will be moms and you won't. And I just, I believe that you are a mom and that your baby died and that that is a tragedy, but you are a mom. And I think that moms come in all different forms and that you are obviously a, a wonderful mom. I think Vanessa is exactly right. You you are already a mom. You are a mom. You've you've counted the fingers and toes of your baby. Um, and we hope that that soon you'll be holding a baby in your arms. And before we move on to our last voicemail, Ariana pointed out to us that a lot of our Owl Post episodes end up being about grief and about bearing witness to our listeners' grief. And I think I just want to offer a blessing to the Harry Potter books because I think that they are a brilliant place for holding grief and for reflecting back to us the grief that we feel. And to Danielle's point that we don't always feel 
like society handles in a way that means something to us. But these books are such a wonderful place to reflect on grief. And I want to thank our listeners for sharing their stories with us. And we hope that sharing these stories back out with our community means that we are having a frank conversation about the fact that we are all constantly living in a form of grief. This next voicemail is from Molly, and her mom, Ingrid, sent it to us. Hi, this is Molly Tavinas. I'm, I'm nine years old, and I love your podcast. My mom and I like to listen to it while we're doing puzzles. Today I'd like to make a comment about uh, your thing on the Rivals Duel, and I'd, I'd like to share a story from my own life. Okay, here goes. Well... You talked about how bullies change the rules on people, and I had that happen to me. Um, I, when I was little, like five and six, I went to the school, and uh, and I met a kid. Um, we didn't have the best relationship at first. Like I got really mad at him for bumping into me in the gym, and he avoided me. But then we became friends, and uh, he was really imaginative, and we used to play like. We imagined that we had secret identities, and it was fun for a while, but then it started going downhill. Like, he lied to me, he he called me rude names, but worst of all, when we played games, he always cheated, he always won, and, and he tried to advantage himself in our invented games, he kept changing the rules on me, but... A few months ago, or a couple months ago, probably, like, two, we ran into him, him and his family at a restaurant, and, and a play date was set up, and I enjoyed playing with him. He didn't cheat, and we kind of got some closure. And I was wondering if you think that it's possible for Harry and Draco Malfoy to get some closure, or if you think that the, their problem was even more severe and that they couldn't. Thanks so much. Molly, I have so many thoughts. (laughs) First of all, I think that it is maddening when people change the rules on you and pretend like they aren't. We seem to be in a moment in our culture in which the word gaslighting is getting used more and more because I think that you are pointing us towards something that is culturally having a moment where people are just telling you that the rules aren't changing, even though they are clearly changing right in front of you. And that is just completely infuriating. And I'm so sorry you went through that. And I'm so glad that a play date was set up for you. And I I wonder if the structures of Hogwarts could create a situation in which Draco and Harry could heal. But instead, what ends up happening is like, Snape and Lockhart make them duel. They are never given that opportunity where a play date gets set up for them. Instead, they are constantly being set up to compete with points given to one house over another. Collaboration is never encouraged between the two of them. So unfortunately, we don't find out. Molly, you sound like such a fun person to be friends with. I would feel so lucky to have a friend who is so creative and so imaginative. So you keep on being creative and don't let anybody take advantage of you. 
You've been listening to a special Owl Post edition of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, which is now good because Maggie is running them. We also have a Patreon, so you can go support us there and get bonus content every week that we have an episode. Please leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. We love listening to them. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 21, The Eye of the Snake, through the theme of honesty. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of Night Vale Presents. This week, we would like to thank, as always, Stephanie Paulsell, everybody who sent in our voicemails for this week, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, and a special thanks to Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. Next week we'll be reading the chap next week we'll be reading chapter twenty-one through the eye of the snake. No, not through, just the eye of the snake. Next week we'll be reading chapter one, the eye of the snake. No? Twenty one. What is it? Twenty one. You said one. Oh, I didn't even hear it. Next week we'll be reading chapter one, the eye of the snake. No? You said one, one again. I am am I having a stroke? Because I'm hearing twenty-one. Are you guys? No, we're not. We're not messing with you.